to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Again, welcome. Uh, we made the mistake of moving the curtains in a little bit because it's a holiday weekend. So if you feel a little cramped up, I'm sorry. Uh, I was not expecting as many people here this morning, so I'm glad everybody's here. Um, welcome. Again, if I didn't meet you on the way in, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill, and I really am excited that you're, you're here with us today. Uh, and uh, as we continue in Genesis, so a few announcements before we get into Genesis this morning. Uh, and, and for, first thing is, is that if you're a guest, fill out that connection card, take it back to the table back there. We'll give you that $5 gift card. We'll also follow up with you via email and we'll send you a list of charities in that email that we will make a donation for you too uh, as our thank you for you being here. So just respond to that email, tell us which one, and uh, we'll do that. Uh, sec- uh, secondly, um, our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. Gospel meaning good news that we were once separated from God. Uh, that we, were, we are sinners by nature and by choice, meaning that we choose to do things that don't glorify God. And so because of what Jesus has done for us, we can have a new relationship with God. And so we'll talk a lot about that this morning as we dig in uh, to the text. Secondly, community, God created us for relationship. He created us to, uh, to know each other and to, 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 be, to befriend one another around all of our differences uh, from different walks of life and backgrounds and temperaments. Um, all these different things together in community. And then lastly, mission. Uh, mission is the idea that God called us to join him to make the world a better place. We do this through serving others like Jesus has served us. And then also we share the good news of Jesus with other people because of what, uh, how Jesus has saved us through the cross. Um, a couple of announcements before we get into it today. Uh, first of all, it's coming right after the service. First, we're having baptism. You'll notice this giant tub of water behind us. It's not just decoration. Uh, we're having baptisms this morning, so we're very excited for that. And uh, to celebrate, we're going to go out to Johnson Park, which is right by the Green Street Tea Stop. So uh, if you brought lunch with you, awesome. If not, pick something up on the way. We're just going to go hang out, and we're going to go celebrate and just enjoy, hopefully, some warmer weather once we get out there. And it's going to be a really good time. There's actually a spot, a place to eat right next door to the park, so you're welcome to stop there as well. Um, secondly, coming up is our membership class on Friday. Uh, our membership class is uh, really the first step towards membership. If you're interested in becoming a member, uh, we'll talk about who we are, what we believe, uh, what makes us unique. Um, you can come to this class even if you're not ready to become a member. This is just a great way to learn more about us. You don't have to, don't have to join if you come to that class. Uh, but let us know that you're coming uh, by uh, registering online, coahforesthills.org slash events. And that helps us uh, know how much food to get. And also if you have children, that way we can set up childcare for them. Uh, there's actually a really incredible opportunity for you to be able to serve coming up in a couple of weeks. Uh, we partner with English High School. They're one of our neighborhood partners. We serve primarily with their, their, um, their uh, ESL program. And they are wanting us to help with a, uh, a walking taco tour, which I don't even know about what it, what it is. I'm excited. Um, and so, uh, but there, it's going to be a really great opportunity um, to do that. We're, we're spearheading this as a way to just be a blessing to their families and to the parents of the school. And so if, we'd love for you to volunteer for that. Uh, so 
please come find me after the service if you're interested in volunteering for that. We need people to help serve, help greet, help prepare food. Uh, so more hands, the, the better on that. And then lastly, just a, a quick reminder, in two weeks, um, we, are, we are going on a retreat. So if you've signed up for the treat, retreat, awesome. But several have not, which is okay. And so if you're going to be in town on retreat weekend, that's going to be October 23rd. We are having a worship service here at the church. So it's going to be a very small, kind of stripped back worship service. Uh, but we do encourage you to come to that if you're not uh, going to be joining us on the retreat. Now, the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, uh, we've been looking at this idea of a world that God created, this ideal world. And we, we've looked at how God created a whole world for a group of people. He created this entire world for people to enjoy. Uh, and he gave us this world to cultivate and make into a place that would reflect his glory through all creation. And we saw how God created us a couple weeks ago as the pinnacle of that creation. He created people uniquely in his image to rule over and cultivate this world. And in being made in God's image, it means that we are like him. We are like God. Now, we are not God, but we are a reflection of God. We are a representation of God to the world. And we see this in the fact that we can have rational thought and rational conversation as long as it's not on social media. Uh, we're able to have rational conversation, rational thought. We're able to think ideas bigger than ourselves. Um, we, we, uh, we, the fact that we are character. We are loving people, but God is love. We can be just people, but God is just um, our ability to create and work and do, and also the fact that we are uh, responsible for creation. God gave us creation to work and to cultivate and, and to make into something uh, that would, would grow and glorify him. But also we saw last week how God created us for relational joy, that uh, because God is a community, is Father, Son, and Spirit, we are to be in community with each other in such a way that we flourish and we grow as God intended. So the first few weeks of this series have been great. They've been very idyllic. We look at this and go, man, this is the type of world we would all want to live in, but we don't live in that world. We don't live in a world where work is easy. We don't live in a world where all of our relationships bring joy. And in fact, it's almost as if the pictures don't tell the real story of what it's really like. A few weeks ago, or a few months ago now, my family went to Montreal. And just like we do anytime we go to this town, we look for an Airbnb. Uh, we're a family of six, and so we have to have something large enough to fit our family of six, and hotel work rooms don't typically do that. And if you've ever been on Airbnb and you've looked at something and go, man, these pictures look great, have you ever gotten to the place and said, man, this is not the same place as the pictures? Um, that was our experience. We get to Montreal, we're fighting through traffic. It takes us two hours to get to our Airbnb. We pull up and I'm looking and I'm like, this doesn't look right. So I try to text the guy, call the guy, can't get him on the phone. Finally, he get, I get the key from the guy. We open the door and I swear the hallway is like as wide as this music stand. And I'm like, and, and we open the door and there's this rush of Saharan heat that hits us. And I'm like, this is, this is not what we signed up for. And we go in and we look and it's hot and there's like one little rinky-dink fan. We go to the back of the place, there's laundry piled on top of the dryer, there's trash in the corner and there is literal flecks of like human skin on the sheets and fingernails and grossness. The pictures did not match reality. That's what it feels like in the world we live in. We look at Genesis 1 and 2 and we see the picture of what the world should look like and we say, man, the pictures don't match reality because we live in an evil world. 
We live in a world where every time we watch the news, it feels like there's another shooting. It feels like we see constant sickness and injustice and poverty. We look at the heartache in our world. I have many friends who were devastated by Hurricane Ian. We see the devastation of the world that we live in. And no matter what you believe, no matter what you come in with this morning, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you believe in some other religion, you're not even religious, you have to have an answer for why the world is the way that it is. Why is the world in such shape? Why is the world broken? And no matter what you believe, you know it's this way because it's just not right. You get unhappy. In fact, most of us are typically unhappy people trying to figure out how to be happy. Unhappiness is our default rather than happiness. We get frustrated with the way things are going. We get lonely. Work is often much harder than it is joyful. You were made for some other world than the one, the one that you see in the pictures. And it almost feels like it's this faint memory that we're constantly trying to get back to. So I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Hook. Um, I love Hook. It's one of my favorite movies as a kid. And it's this sequel to, um, to Peter Pan. And so Peter Pan has now grown up. He goes back to Neverland. And, but before he goes back, there's this one of the lost boys, Tootles, is now an old man. And he's constantly saying, I've lost my marbles. And so, you know, that's a a euphemism for going crazy. Well, Peter finds the marbles in Neverland and brings them back. And what Tools was longing for was this picture of a world that he felt he was created for. And in the same way, we know something's wrong and we're longing for this world. And we wonder why the world we're in is in the shape that it's in. But we have what Carl Menninger calls a no-fault theology. We know it's wrong, but none of us want to take credit for it. And it's kind of like my kids. There's this riddle. It's like, you know, there are three plates on the table and there are four children. Who left their plate out? And the answer is no one. Uh, None of us want to admit that we're a part of the problem. And we give lots of reasons for why the world is like this. We say it's just people need to be better educated. It's economics. But the reality is, is it's the human heart. And it's not just somebody else's heart. It's my heart. It's your heart. And we have to see how we got into this mess and how honestly it's our fault. So let's first look at how we wrecked the world. So I'm going to kind of walk us through the text today a little bit different than we typically would just by reading a passage and going through. But I'm going to walk us through today. And we see at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 how the first people, Adam and Eve, uh, really messed all of this up for all of us. And then how we repeat that pattern in everyday life. And chapter 3 opens with a very curious statement. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, the serpent there being called crafty, that word there means shrewd. And if someone was a shrewd business person, it would mean that they have just a real ability to be able to make decisions and and, 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 make the hard decisions. And if someone is crafty or shrewd or calculated in a bad way, they can tend to be someone who manipulates someone who deceives. And that's who we see the serpent being. And so the question is, is who is the serpent? Now, traditionally, we have thought of this to be Satan. If you look at Revelation 12, it says, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So we see that the serpent is representative of Satan. And now we, um, and then we see also that it's a beast of the field. And so uh, this is a created being. We believe that the serpent was embodied by Satan or in order to tempt and deceive Eve and Adam. But we know this, that, that he's a created being. 
the Bible doesn't portray good and evil as these opposite equal forces. They're constantly fighting one another. It's not a Marvel movie. They're not fighting one another to try to get supremacy. But if you look at all the other traditions in the ancient world, it was always, there was a good force and there was a bad force and they're fighting each other in order to see who's going to come out on top. The Bible makes it clear. There is no question about who's going to come out on top. God is sovereign and in control. And so he created the world, not in chaos, but he created a garden. He created a world to be good. And this attempt by the serpent is to introduce something into the world that did not exist. He attempted to corrupt what God called good. In fact, C.S. Lewis says that evil isn't even a thing unto itself. It's actually the absence or the corruption of something good. And so we see here that he said to the woman, that should be right there, number one, big sign, red flag, this is not good. I hate snakes. I don't like snakes. I would definitely hate a talking snake. Uh, uh, my friend Rod came to visit a few weeks ago and for my 40th birthday, he's living down in the cave now. And years ago, I've known Rod since I was like 14, um, we were doing flood relief with Send Relief down in, in West Virginia. This flood had devastated this entire town. And so we're crawling underneath these houses and pulling out insulation and piping and all sorts of stuff. And Rod decides to play a practical joke because we've got these little tap lights laid out underneath the house. And Rod is behind me and I'm in front and he says, Stephen, I see a snake. Well, I go into like some sort of out-of-body experience and crawl over him, shove him into the mud and dive out from underneath the house because I hate snakes. I definitely would hate a speaking or a talking snake, a crafty and deceptive snake. And we see it in using his words that we see his character, that he wants to deceive Eve. And he doesn't come right out and challenge God. He kind of weaves it in. The world was wrecked by the slow, insidious creep of a lie. And what he starts with is he casts doubt. He says to the woman, did God actually say that? Did God actually tell you that? He doesn't make an accusation. He just makes a suggestion. He says, you know, it seems kind of silly that God would hold this one thing back from you. It seems kind of silly. Are you sure that God is good? He exaggerates. He says, did God actually say to you that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He reframes God's command, which in Genesis 2 was actually very liberal, very, very open, saying you can do anything. You can have all the things that you want except for this one prohibition. You can do anything you want. But notice the woman's response as, as Satan frames God as restrictive and repressive. He, he do, she doesn't really refute it. She doesn't really agree with it. She kind of, kind of shifts it and changes it. She says in verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, the problem is if you compare that to God's command in Genesis chapter 2, that's not at all what God said. In Genesis chapter 2, God said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's something different there. She removes the words any and freely, that you can can eat of everything and anything in the garden except for this one thing. And then she also adds this prohibition saying, you know, even if you touch it, you're going to die. Don't even touch it. She she gets really religious. She puts a a rule around it and says, you can't even touch it. And you begin to see the seeds of resentment kind of building in her heart. 
She wasn't fully appreciative of, of the abundant creation that God had given them. And in verse 4, we see where Satan, he's got, he's got his foot in the door. The door's cracked a little bit. It starts to open it up a little more. He begins to contradict God. The serpent said to the woman, you, shall, you will not surely die. God's lying to you. He, he can't be trusted. He doesn't really want your happiness. And then in verse 5, he flips the table. He, he shows all his cards. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God doesn't want your best. He's, he's jealous. He's selfish. He wants all the knowledge and the power for himself. He doesn't want to give any of that to you. He knows that if he does, he's going to have to share power and authority. He's really not the source of life. He, he's a barrier to your life. And so what, what, does, what does Eve do in response to this? Look at verse 6. And I know that a lot of words and stuff aren't on the screen, and we're having some technical difficulties this morning, so I'm going to try to, we're going to try to send the outline to this out after the sermon, after the service. Um, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She saw that it was good for food, that this will satisfy me. She desired it. She said, this is real beauty. This is what can make me wise. This is what can give me really, give me the truth that I need. Derek Kidner says that the pattern of sin runs right through the act. For Eve listened to the creature instead of the creator, followed her impressions against her instructions, and made self-fulfillment her goal. Thank you guys for getting that up. You guys are awesome. Um, they took and they ate, and it wrecked everything. It messed up everything. And so because of Adam and Eve, sin and evil entered the world. Now you may be listening to this, especially if you're hearing this for the first time and be thinking, man, what's the big deal about some fruit? What's the big deal? They, all they did was do one wrong thing and all this happens, everything breaks. It's really the reason they did it. What they were saying is they're saying, God, I know better than you. I can do a better job than you. I think the things you're asking me to do are ridiculous. I want what you give me. I really don't want you. And what we do is we repeat this every single time that we mess up because we have a sinful nature. We are sinners by nature. They've passed this down to every person who's ever lived. And as we look at the rest of Genesis, we actually begin to see all of this unfold. We get to see human brokenness on display. And we see this in our lives too. We, we prove it every day that there's something inside of us innately that is just messed up, and we repeat the pattern because we believe the lie. Tim Keller says, the power of sin is not fang marks on the neck, but falsehood in the heart. You think of sin as out here, you think of evil as out here, but to the, to the degree you believe lies and to the degree you participate and breathe and pass them along, to that degree, evil has power over you and in you. And if you, if you don't believe me about this, why is it that we keep searching for love constantly? If you're not in a relationship, it feels like we always want to be in a relationship. And if you're in one, you realize it's never enough. I'm constantly wanting this person to love me more. I constantly want this friend to be a better friend. Why are we always job hopping and looking for something new? Why are we trying to find 
the right workout plan or diet or beauty regimen, the right haircut. You're looking for something to, to satisfy you. You're looking to something to behold as beautiful. You're looking to something to give you wisdom in order to, how to, to live. And what we do is we believe the same lie because we doubt God at his word. Are you really good? We exaggerate. We say, God, the, the, your commands are just too hard. It's, it's too hard for me. I, you only want me to follow the rules. You really don't want me to enjoy this life. We end up contradicting God. And we say, well, I can just live however I want to live. But sin is saying, God, I want what you alone can provide, but I don't want you. And God says here in the garden, you could have had all the joy and all the blessings that you want. And it's the same for us. And so we're constantly trying to rebuild what sin has wrecked. So let's look at, at what immediately happens. Let's see how the wreckage plays itself out. We see that everything from this moment gets broken. Everything starts to come apart. Uh, St. Augustine, the great 4th century African bishop, he said, sin is moving away from God. It's actually pulling ourselves apart. And when God removes his presence from his creation, everything starts beginning to decay. And we see this in several ways. We see this in, in brokenness. We First of all, we see it in emotional brokenness. Look at verse 7. It says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There's emotional brokenness. They experienced guilt. They, they saw what they had done. They, they knew that they, that they messed up. They were, they had this, it was really clear that they messed up this creation. They could look down and see the bite mark and the fruit. They knew what they had done. They had experienced guilt. And not just guilt, but it says that they were naked. Now, the word naked there means vulnerable. They're standing there before one another, and for the first time, they doubted that they could be both loved and known. And we experience that too. We believe if I'm going to be loved by anyone, they can't really know who I am. And if they know me, they're not going to love me. But before sin entered the world, you could be both fully loved and fully known, naked before God, and have no shame. They experienced shame because they were seen as they really are. And so they began to try to cover up with fig leaves in order to cover their shame. And in verse 8, they hear God coming. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord, God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They're hiding away. And in verse 9, it says, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And they respond. Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. There had never been a reason to feel guilty. There had never been a reason to feel shame. There had never been a reason to feel afraid. But you and I, we've never known a world like that. We've never known what it's like to not experience those things. And really, depending on what culture you come from, one of those, guilt, shame, or fear, may hit you harder than the other. If you were, grew up in the West, Probably guilt is probably the one you experience the most. If you grew up in a lot of Middle Eastern or, or, or Asian cultures, maybe the shame and honor part of this would, would impact you more. Or maybe it's fear. One of these probably hits you more than the other, but you don't have to dig real deep to find guilt, shame, or fear. When I was a kid, I used to love to go fishing, and sometimes my granddad would say, hey, go out in the backyard and start digging for worms. You don't have to dig real long before you start finding worms for fishing. It's the same thing with guilt, fear, and shame. 
You don't have to dig real deep into your life before you start seeing that maybe you're cheating the clock at work and you're just sitting there, you know, busting out Wordle for the third time and you're on social media and you're just milking the clock and you're getting paid for it and you kind of feel that little bit of low-grade guilt. You think about all the stuff that you've done or experienced that you don't want anybody else to know about. That's shame. You really believe that if people understood how incompetent you felt, you would just be afraid. We experience this emotional brokenness, but also relational brokenness. When they're hiding, what are they doing? They're creating distance from God. The God who in verse 8 says that would walk with them. And this picture is a picture of intimacy. That God would have communion with them and walk with them. And they could experience God in this beautiful way, this intimate friendship. And now that's been lost, but not just with God, but with each other. And you see this pair that were at one point inseparable. Adam and Eve were, were like hashtag goals. They were a squad. They were together. And as God begins to press in, we see how everything starts to get pushed apart. In verse 11, God says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And you see the distance and you see the blame shifting start in verse 12 where the man says, Well, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The woman... He says, it's her fault. Don't blame me. Don't look at me. That's, it's on her. And then here it gets even worse, that you gave me. I'm going to put this back in your face, God. And the excuses roll in. I hid because I was afraid. I only ate because she did it first and she gave it to me. Does that sound familiar to any argument you've ever had? Yeah. I only said that because you made me mad. I'm sorry, I'm just stressed at work this week. I didn't, I didn't mean to, to do that. You know, it's his fault that I can't get ahead. It created relational brokenness. We even see that it caused brokenness when it came to children, came to, to, to childbearing. Verse 16, to the woman, God said, part of the, the fallout of the fall, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. That childbearing is going to get harder. It's not just going to get painful. I mean, this, I think this is about physical pain and childbirth, but there's a whole lot of other things that are hard about childbirth too. Infertility is really, really difficult. That's a part of a fallen world that those who desire to have children are unable to have children. Losing a child before you are supposed to know parents never have to bury their child having rebellious kids later who leave your home and don't want to speak to you or, or broken relationships. And I think there's a, there's a unique way that we experience this, but I think often women experience this, even to a greater degree than men, this ache that comes with children. But also the way that men and women even relate to each other. It's no longer natural or easy. There was a book written many years ago that men are from Venus, women are from Venus and men are from Mars. Like, there's something there. <laughs> It says in verse 16, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. That word desire there means that they are going to be at odds with each other. There's going to be this longing for control. And for the man, there's going to be this longing to rule over or desire to dominate. And there's going to be a struggle relationally that's contrary to our natural desire to always be right and win. We have relational brokenness. We also have vocational brokenness. Work gets significantly harder because of sin. 
work, which was supposed to be satisfying, supposed to be something that gives life, becomes, a, becomes something incredibly difficult. And God tells Adam in verse 17, he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife above the voice of the Lord and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Cursed is the ground. Have you ever felt like work is cursed? <laughs> yeah, amen. Uh, have you ever felt like have you ever felt like you've gone to work and whatever you put in, you don't get out? Every time you go to work and you feel that and you experience the back-breaking, soul-crushing nature of work, it should be a reminder that we live in a fallen world. Every time you go to work and you give that proposal and it just bombs, or you go and you get your review back from your boss and you don't get the raise or you don't get what you hope for, you feel like you're not making a difference. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 8, we see King Solomon, who's, who's the most successful person in the entire Old Testament. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. Verse 19, we see the futility of work, that by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. After you die, no one will care what you did for a living. No one's going to care. In a few weeks, no one's going to even remember what your job title was. That's just the nature of work. It becomes harder, and we see that you just return to the ground from which you were made. It doesn't work. Lastly is physical brokenness. Because they obeyed, they forfeited eternal life. And Satan, as he told them this lie, he only kind of partially lied. They didn't immediately die, but they did surely die. And the clearest, most tangible evidence that we live in a broken world is physical brokenness because we are falling apart. We break bones. We, we get sick. We, we lose our functions. And when we think about that, that's not natural. No one goes to a funeral and says, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. It's another one. Nobody does that. And you know the reason why nobody does that is because you show up to the funeral. If you wouldn't show up to the funeral, it was just natural for us to die. We forfeited presence with God, which is what gives us life. And chapter 2, verse 7 says that's actually what makes us different than the animals, is that God has given us the breath of life and that man and woman were intended to live forever because God is the sustainer of life who holds all things together. And so we see God banish them because they would live on forever in this state. And we ask ourselves, why? Is God simply being petty? Why, why would God need to reject them? Why would they need to die? And the reason is, is that God is gracious because they were miserable. They're absolutely miserable. They're racked with guilt, shame, and fear that they have to hide from God. They're going to be in this eternity of relational strife. Work is going to be completely fruitless. And so they, they needed to find a way back to life with God, but there's only one way to get back there, and that is by dealing with sin. See, here's why you have to deal with the wreckage. is that God is holy, and God is good. And to try to find life in anything other than him is to reject his holiness and to reject his goodness. It's not just foolish. It's not that it just doesn't satisfy. 
when we reject God by doing what we want to do, it is spitting in the face of our creator. And I know that seems extreme to say that, but we're telling God, I don't need you, nor do I want you. And so for us to make right what has been made wrong, it is more than us just trying harder. It is more than us just saying we're sorry. It has to be made right. And the only way that this can be made right is through God himself. But we make so many attempts to deal with our guilt and our shame and our fear. We hide. We ignore it. We try to just tuck our head in the sand. Or we do as verse 7 says, is we just sew together some fig leaves and try to cover it up. Some, some people might not even be religion. And maybe the fact that I'm going to do all the right things, I'm going to mark off all the boxes, I'm going to, I'm going to be a good person, and that's going to be what covers up my shame. I'm going to do a really good job at my work, and I'm going to make a difference in the world. I'm going to, I'm going to have whatever relationship I'm in, I'm going to be a better husband or a better father or a better mother or a better wife. I'm going to be a better than I experienced as a kid. I'm going to hide behind my appearance or my beauty, behind my status or success. But here's the problem with fig leaves. They don't cover a lot. They don't leave a lot to the imagination. You need something better to cover you. And that's where we begin to see the first picture of how God deals with sin. He redeems it. If you go back to verse 9, when God says, where are you? Did God really need to know? God knew. God knew exactly where they were. There There was not a surprise. But what is God doing? God is pursuing those who wander away. He's coming after those who wander. He's caring. He's loving. He's the exact opposite of the way that the serpent portrayed him. That before they were ever sorry, while they were still in their guilt, their shame, and their fear, God came after them. And we begin to see how God does this by dealing with evil. If you go back to verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field on your belly, which is, means defeat, you shall go and dust, as humiliation, you shall eat all the days of your life. God has dealt with evil, and evil will not win. And he does so through the work of the cross. Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the, and the woman. That's hostility, an ongoing hostility between uh, the, the offspring of Satan, evil, all evil things, and woman's offspring, which is all people. I'm going to put this enmity between you. And so we see that sin is going to rage in and among us until when he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say when they crush the serpent's head. It doesn't say when they. It doesn't mean that one day you and I are just going to figure it out well enough and we're going to overcome all of our problems. We're going to outwork and outscheme all of our mistakes. It says when he crushes the serpent's head. Who is that? That's Jesus. Jesus who took the sting of death on the cross for you, who took what you deserve, and in so doing, crushed the head of Satan, sin, and death. And this is what has been called the first gospel, the first picture of God's grace, that God would put a substitute in, someone who's innocent for the guilty. And so how do Adam and Eve respond to grace? This is how you respond to grace. You do so by faith, by trust. Verse 20, it says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. What is Adam doing? He is stepping out on faith, trusting that God would actually bring life. Her name meaning 
life. He believed God on his promise. And so what qualified Adam for this? Nothing. It's not his goodness. We've seen that. We've seen the blame shifting and, 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 and the deception and all of that. It's grace by faith. And this is how God responds to us. That we respond to his grace by faith. And what does God do? When we respond to that by faith, he covers us. Look at verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. He covered their nakedness and their shame better than their fig leaves ever could. And here's what happens when you trust Jesus to work for you. He covers you. There's this picture in in Zechariah chapter 3 of Joshua the high priest, and he's standing before God, and Satan is standing there as as an accuser. He's He's like the prosecuting attorney. And he's, he's, pro, he's saying all the evil things that the, the high priest has done. And the picture is of the high priest standing in soiled garments. He's standing in soiled garments, family worship Sunday, um, standing in soiled garments before God. And God says, remove his soiled garments and give him garments of white. Not because of what he's done, but because of my grace. That's what happens when we trust Jesus, is Jesus exchanges our filthy rags, and gives us pure white ones. That when God sees you, He doesn't see your mistakes, He doesn't see your your struggles, He doesn't see all the things that, that make you unworthy before Him. He sees the perfect work of Jesus for you. But there's only one way to get back there. There's only one way to be made like this. There's only one way back to the tree of life. Someone has to go through the sword of death. Look at verse 24. It says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Someone had to go through the sword of death. And that was Jesus for you. Because Jesus died on the cross for your sin, his blood poured out, paying for what you did wrong, you can experience life. You can experience forgiveness and life with God because Jesus was stripped bare and ashamed upon the cross. You've been covered with his righteousness. Let's pray.